Hey guys, before we get started with today's episode, I need to let you know that this episode and every episode is sponsored by Ale Asylum. If you would like to know more about Ale Asylum, visit aleasylum.com. This episode is also sponsored by Resolution Therapeutic Massage. If you'd like to find out more about Resolution, visit resolutionmassage.com. Hello and welcome to the Madison Story Slam podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, right off the top here, can I just ask you to press pause, go over to the Apple Podcast app or maybe iTunes on your computer, search for Madison Story Slam using the search feature, and give us a rating and a review. Ratings help people find our show, and the reviews help me to know what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show. You could tell us what you would like to see different. And uh, that's how you can affect change in our community. Thank you for tuning in. We've got a great Story Slam episode today for you from our March 17th event, which was big. That was the theme. And uh, let me tell you, there are a lot of great big stories in here from a lot of great people. Uh, Just so you know, coming up for Madison Story Slam on April 21st at the Wilmar Center. That is the third Saturday in April. We have the theme Child's Play. So come on out to the Wilmar Center that night for another story slam and tell and hear some great stories about your childhood and the things you did as children, the games you played. It can be anything. You just, uh, as I've been saying, maybe maybe you were uh, hunted by a children's doll that was possessed by the spirit of a serial killer. Uh, if you want to take the theme very literally, since we chose it after, you know, those Chucky movies. Um, what else? May 12th at Mr. Roberts on Atwood, we're doing our new event called Read It and Weep. We want you to come and read your old journal entries, short stories, letters, plays, anything that you wrote before you graduated high school or anything that you've written that you have 10 years separation from, at least 10 years since you wrote the thing. And we want you to come to Mr. Roberts, read it for us. Maybe you've got a song that you did. You could sing an old song that you wrote, bring a guitar. Maybe I'll bring my guitar so I can let people borrow it. But we just really think that people can learn from what you did then. And uh, it's just going to, you know, here's the other thing. It's going to be funny. You know that people have written funny things in their old journals Uh, because we were all young once, right? And when we were young, we didn't quite understand everything that we thought we did, and so it's so much fun to go back and reflect on the things we thought we knew then and compare them to the things that we do know now. So again, that's May 12th at Mr. Roberts. You should come to that, have a lot of fun. Hey, our first storyteller on this episode is my friend Cole Seabald, and it's about a big leap that led to a big decision So here is Cole. Thanks, guys. So I I wanted to give this story a title tonight, and my title is The Big Leap. And colon, I'll put a little colon in there, um, how a big jump turned into a big decision in my life. So I got married at the age of 23. 
And a lot of people can see that as pretty young. And, uh, and so, and I'm actually very happily married. I'm only 27. I mean, it's only been four and a half years, but I am just loving being married and, and I'm married to my best friend. And so I have a lot of people come up to me and, um, and say, like, how did you know? Like, people that are dating, especially dudes, and they're like, how did you know? Like, I'm thinking of maybe, like, proposing or something, but I just, I, I'm afraid I'm going to make a mistake or I'm afraid I'm jumping in too quickly. So, I mean, a lot of people are looking for, like, a, act of God or a slap in the face or anything like that, but I remember distinctly when I knew when I was going to marry my wife, and uh, I mean sort of. I'll get to that in a second. So, so I guess the story starts my, my senior year of um, college, and I started actually dating my wife, and she's here right now, but um, it was awesome. Like, she's, she's amazing. We get along. We're, we're, uh, we just have fun together. It's like an amazing relationship. And so time progresses, and it's still my senior year, and um, things are still going great with me and my wife. I'm like, this girl's awesome. And, um, and so what happens, it was uh, March 31st of 2012, and so I had some friends in town, and they, you know, had been in town for a few days, and they were about to leave town. And um, I can be pretty dumb sometimes. I can be, uh, you know, I'm tall, lanky, and stupid often. I don't think before I act. So my friends, I don't even know whose idea it was, but my friend Josh was like, hey, Cole, you jump over a lot of things all the time. And I, you know, I jump over fences or chairs or tables or anything like that. And it was just a thing for me. I was like, I'll jump over anything. And so, um, so I jumped over the hood of his car a few months previous. And, and he's like, well, why don't we try to jump over a full car? And I'm like, yes, this is the time. Like, I've been waiting for this time. And... Uh, so we set up my best friend's car in the front of my house, like right in the driveway area. And, um, and no one thought this would be a bad idea. Like no one questioned at all that this would be dangerous even. Like or at least I don't imagine they did. I didn't. Uh, maybe other people were like, this might be a bad idea. But nonetheless, uh, we set up my friend's, um, he's got a Honda Civic Coupe. So like a two-door, it's pretty small, little blue car. And I'm like, let's do this. This is the day. This is the day I jump over a car. And, um, and I was just waiting for the glory. And so I, I put on my gym shorts. I, someone pulls out a, a recording camera. And this was before smartphones were huge. So we pulled out one of those little cameras. But we, we, we got it all going. It was, it was uh, ready to go. So I'm in my jeans. I mean, my, my gym shorts. I'm doing these, like, jumps up and down. You know, warm up the legs a little bit. And, uh, and so I, I, like, prep my mind. I'm about to jump over this car. And so I just get a running, running start and just start booking it at this car. And... Probably like five feet before I'm about to like even just reach out and touch this car, I just realized I'm going way too fast. And this, is, this might be a bad idea, but I'm going to try it again. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop myself on the car and just start over. And so I'm like going, but I'm, I'm coming in hard. So I, I stop myself on like the upper edge of the uh, car. And my, meanwhile, the car is stationary. I'm trying to jump one side to the other. So it's not, nothing crazy. I mean, you know, it is crazy. But... Um, so I stop myself on this car, and I'm going fast, and I, like, slam into this, the car, and I'm thinking, I bounce off, and I'm like, oh, maybe I'll try again, and, and they all kind of realize something went wrong, so they're like, oh, and I'm like, I'm about to, and then I realize, I just hit this car really fast, and I'm like, I might have even dented this car, so I look at the car and look down, and it, there was no dent, but there was a baseball-sized hole in the quarter window, and I look down, and I'm like, 
something on my body caused that hole. And my knee is like, I did. And I look down and my knee is like, has this huge gash in it. And, and we're all like, and my friends are like, Cole, you should sit down. And like, like get on the floor because like blood is like gushing out of my leg. And so, so I'm like, okay, this is cool. And the pain hadn't set in yet. So my friends are like, we gotta go to the hospital. Do we call an ambulance or do we drive you? So they decided to drive me, put a towel on my knee. We get to the hospital. Meanwhile, on the way to the hospital, I'm like, I should probably call a few people. I should probably call Heather, and I should probably call my mom. So I called my mom, called Heather. I probably, Heather was on her way to a um, concert in uh, D.C. at the time, and we went to school in Virginia, so it wasn't too far. And I probably ruined that night for her so bad. Like, her concert was ruined because of that. And she's like, you know, both of them are like, you did what? And that's, that shows love right there. So anyway, um, we get to the hospital, and I'm a... I'm walking in, I mean, they're, they're strolling me in on the wheelchair, and this cop is there in the ER, and he's like, he's like, what happened to you? And I'm like, oh, here's what happened. And he's like, he pauses for a hot second. He's like, you boys been uh, drinking today? And I'm like, actually, I'm a pretty straight-laced guy, and I think this is the first time in my life where I've been ashamed to say I was sober. <laughs> and um, we get into the, the room, and, uh, you know, where the, the ER doctor treats me, and he, like, he, like, pulls up the flap of skin that's on, on top of my knee, and it's, it's not looking good. I don't know why, but they, they told me to come back in a few days. They, like, semi-stitched me up, but there was still a lot of glass in my knee, so there had been, like, chunks of Honda Civic Coupe stuck in there. And, and so they send me home. I come back a few days later, and they're ready for surgery. They're going to take all the glass out. And so... I remember the doctor's face pretty well. He was like, uh, you know, Italian guy. He was, I forget, Pasquale was his last name. And then I don't remember the anesthesiologist's name, but I remember his face very well as he's putting me under because they had to, you know, put the anesthesia on me. And so he's sitting, countdown from 10. And I'm thinking, as I look at his face, that's a gorgeous mustache, well-groomed mustache on your face. <laughs> I'm not in that much pain yet. I mean, maybe it's the Vicodin that they gave me the first visit. But anyway... I think the real fun came when I was in the recovery room. So all of a sudden, after the surgery, I'm waking up, and I am like shooting the breeze with the nurse there. I didn't know how long I was talking. I didn't know how I learned her name. Her name was Nurse Charlotte, and I referred to her in every sentence as Nurse Charlotte. Um, and I have no idea where that all came together, but I just was picking up somehow in the middle of everything. And I'm saying, I'm, I, I love Nurse Charlotte. Like, she's doing such a great job, and I want her to know that. And I'm like, Nurse Charlotte, you're doing great. Nurse Charlotte, how old are you? And she goes, I'm 34. And I go, Nurse Charlotte, you're not a day, you don't look a day over 29 years old. And she's like, well, thank you, Cole. And, uh, and I'm like, Nurse Charlotte, you know, I was kind of worried about the surgery before I went in, but once I saw that anesthesiologist's really well-groomed mustache, I knew I was in really good. I kid you not, I said that sentence. And so, um, and then, and she's laughing it up. She's such a sport. And then I say to her, Nurse Charlotte, I'm going to marry my girlfriend. And she goes, you've said that, Cole. You've said that a few times. I had never said that until that point. And I think, it's, I think that's the moment, you know, when I, when I knew. And so, I mean, you're in this moment when you're waking up from the anesthesia, busting your knee on a car, and you're like, you know, this is the, the truth serum people have been looking for, you know? I, I think you, you're raw in that moment. You're like, you're like saying things that are very true, 
and yet you would no normally never say them. You would hold them back. And, you know, I mean, it's a, you know, I mean, at that moment, I was definitely going to marry my girlfriend. You know, Nurse Charlotte definitely did not look a day over 29, and that anesthesiologist had a really tight mustache. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Cole, my new best friend. Uh, our next storyteller is one of my favorite people. Uh, he has, I'll tell you this, he is the reason that two years ago I didn't end Story Slam, so he's the reason that you're all able to be here tonight. Please give it up for Bradley Glassell. So I was standing on the bar trail and I was leaning against a large boulder and I was desperately trying to catch my breath and really hoping that I wasn't going to throw up. So, But I should probably go back to the beginning of the story. The story actually starts exactly two years ago on St. Patrick's Day 2016. I was sitting in a urologist's office and he told me that I had stage three prostate cancer. So that kind of started the year of what my wife and I like to refer to as the shitstorm. <laughs> and at that point, a lot of things come through your mind and, and started making plans and that. And the next stop was at the oncologist's office and we set up the, the plan for that year of treatment, including what's called hormone therapy, external beam radiation, high-dose radiation, things like that, that were going to take place during 2016. And so you start kind of coming up with these ideas, some crazy things. Like one crazy thing is I got a tattoo. I'm 50, I was 58 years old. Who the fuck gets a tattoo at 58? <laughs> so I thought, you know, I, I really need to come up with this big plan. You know, something's going on here. I need to come up with this big plan. So I was going to basically be going through about six, eight months of all these types of cancer treatment. And so I decided that the following June, I would climb Pike's Peak. And so came up with this plan and, and put together eight people to go and climb Pike's Peak. So of course, the brilliance of this plan is that after six months of cancer treatment, you are really ready to do one of the most physical things you've ever done in your life, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of brilliance there. So, um, so we go ahead and, and make the plan, and, and basically, again, that, that whole thing, uh, the one thing about the treatments that, uh, two things that it caused is the type of treatments I have are muscle loss and weight gain. Yeah, I'm not at my ideal weight still yet. So, uh, you know, doing something like that physical, again, pretty hard. So, but we go ahead. So we travel to Colorado and go to climb Pikes Peak. And I don't know if anybody knows what that's about, but basically Pikes Peak is a 14,000-foot-high mountain in Colorado. And it's uh, 12 miles each way up and down. And so what you typically do with it, and the plan for this was to go there and the first day to climb up to 10,000 feet to bar camp at that point and stay overnight. 
Now, some people actually are crazy enough that they can do this in like a day or something, but of course that's way out of the question. So, uh, so to go to the first day to bar camp, stay overnight there. Then the second day, go with a lighter pack, you know, not your full backpack, go up to the peak, summit the peak, come back down to bar camp, stay overnight and go back down. So that was the plan. Well, I go with eight people, and of course, everybody's in much better shape than me, you know, no, no holes barred on that one. And as a matter of fact, one of the things I discovered soon before going on this is that I also had a herniated disc. The best thing for a herniated disc is to hike with a big backpack on it. That's what the doctors told me. This is, this is how you're going to really help that thing. So, so comes to uh, the first day, and we climb up to the camp, and it, it, was, it was hard. Uh, you know, elevation, things like that, climb up to the camp. Well, everybody else really didn't have that big of a problem with this, and got to the camp in the early afternoon, and there really just wasn't much to do there. You know, you're hanging out, and you're waiting until the next day. And so they came up with the plan of instead of going to the peak and then back down to the camp and stay overnight, that they were going to go to the peak and all the way back down the next day. So comes that second day and go to climb up to the peak. And uh, again, this is some pretty hard stuff, you know, the elevation and everything that way. And... Um, one of the mistakes, unfortunately, my wife and I, who were walking along, we made a round turn at one point, and we're about 45 minutes to an hour out of the way, too. So that added on to it. So getting back to where I started, I got up to about 13,000 feet, and everything started to kick in. Exhaustion, uh, elevation type things, headaches, you know, all of that. And I'm looking up, and I can see the peak of Pike's Peak is, is about one mile away but it's up there. And in between there also was a snow mass, even though this was in June, there was a snow mass there too to climb through and all. And I just looked at it and, and I, I said, I, I just can't do it. You know, it's just not worth taking that risk. So we sat there for a while, actually made a couple 50 yard attempts and said, let's turn around and go back down. So we did, we did go back down. We got down then to the camp. By that time, the rest of the people had summited and come back down and met up at the camp, got our backpacks together, and then headed down another six miles down. And it was a toll. I, I've actually done, you may not believe this, 26 triathlons in my life, but this was the hardest thing I ever did in my life. And barely made it down. But we did make it down. That day was a 17-mile day total of hiking. And made it down, and we got to the cabin that we were staying. Uh, my cousin, uh, Lee, who was along, her, her husband was a doctor, and I collapsed in a chair, and he came up and started asking me a bunch of questions, basically, like, are you having a heart attack, you know? <laughs> and I was like, the only thing that doesn't hurt is my chest. Everything else in the world hurts. So, uh, so you know, one of the things about this, again, I mentioned is this is a 14,000-foot peak, and that's kind of a thing in Colorado to do what they call 14ers, you know, and there's a bunch of them that way. Well, I did a 13er. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, it, again, it was a big plan, and I, I didn't quite make that plan, but it was a plan. And so I guess what I want the message to be is that if you have something that you're thinking about that's your big plan, make a plan. 
because without a plan, it's just a wish. And it's probably not going to happen unless you do that. And again, I was diagnosed with this exactly two years ago on St. Patrick's Day. And what I look at now every St. Patrick's Day is I'm above ground and I can make plans. And next Friday, I leave for Ireland for six days of trekking through Ireland. And that's, I'm not Jacques Cousteau, but I hope to be doing much more adventures. So thank you very much. Thank you, Bradley. You know, this is the second time I get to say this at a story slam in almost as many months. Bradley, it's, it ain't about how fast you get there. It ain't about what's waiting on the other side. It's the climb, Bradley. The climb. <laughs> I'll praise Miley. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I actually worked uh, for two summers in Estes Park, Colorado, which is where you can go and, and climb the mountain he was talking about that I've forgotten the name of. Pikes Peak. I worked on a dude ranch on a mountain, not Pikes, but on a mountain. And uh, the, the scariest thing that has ever happened to me in my life was at that dude ranch. Uh, a, a bull elk wandered into like the guest area near the playground where the kids play. And so I decided to see how close I could get to it. And I got about as close as I am to Zach right now. And it felt like Jurassic Park with a T-Rex because <laughs> if I wasn't moving... We were cool. But the second I twitched it all, like it was grazing, if I moved it all, it would just like, <laughs> and stare at me, and I, I would freeze again and be like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna die. It was terrifying, but I had a camera with me, and I kept taking pictures, and every click, it was looking at me like, I'm gonna kill you, like why are you still here? <laughs> it was terrifying. Our next storyteller has also never told a story here before, just like Cole. So be kind, be gracious. I'm sure it's going to be great. Please put your hands together for Seth Rabin. Was I not supposed to stand next to you? Was I supposed to wait until you call me? Okay. Hello. Uh, all right. So I'm going to tell a story about something that happened to me. Uh, years ago, uh, how I almost lost something big and valuable to me. So I'm going to take you guys back to 2009. I'm, I'm a freshman at uh, Western Illinois University, and I'm living in a single dorm room. I did not have a roommate. I was able to have a room to myself, which was really nice. It was peaceful and quiet, nothing going on. So here's what happened. It's a regular Saturday night. You know, I'm in my dormitory, hanging out, not doing much, watching porn, you know, the usual stuff. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the fire alarm goes off. So like we learned at school, we filed out of the building, waited in the parking lot for about 20 minutes, and then once we got the okay to go back in, we filed back in. I get to my dorm room, and I notice that my door is open. So I push the door open, turn on the light, and notice my $1,000 MacBook Pro laptop is stolen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, as you can imagine, I am just, I'm going crazy. I'm storming through the hallways of my dorm, just freaking out, like, where's my laptop? Who took my laptop? You know, someone please find my laptop. Later on, 
two police officers get to my floor, you know, I report what happened, and by this point, I'm just hostile, you know? I am just freaking out, I'm screaming at the police officers, I'm saying stuff like, you know, you gotta go into every single room of this dormitory and find my laptop. Now, this is where it got intense. One of the police officers matched my anger. Let's put it that way. <laughs> if I was screaming at the top of my lungs, she was screaming at the top of her lungs. She was just matching, like she was just as angry as I was. I'm shocked to this day that I did not get tased. Because I, I, I probably would have smelled good, I don't know. But so, okay, so we, I calm down, I finally get myself together. I do the next best thing. I called my mom, told her what happened, and she's like, okay, here's what you do. You go into the computer lab that's in your dormitory, you make a bunch of flyers, and you just post them throughout the dormitory, just saying you'll offer a cash reward, and you know, no questions asked, you just want the laptop back. So, okay, so I get up the next morning, I go into the computer lab, I make a bunch of flyers just saying, you know, hey, I'm offering this reward, no questions asked, just please return the laptop. So I do that, and I'm ready to post these throughout the dormitory. Now, here's the thing about the dormitory that I was living in. Most dorm dormitories on college campuses, they're probably, what, like 10 floors maximum, maybe 15? Mine was 20 floors. And we didn't have the elevators where you could just push a button and you automatically go there. You had to have a key that you had to turn to get to that floor. So I had to go with plan B. I had to take the stairs to every single freaking floor. And I'm just getting my workout in, just going, putting a couple flyers up on each floor, going all the way up until floor 20, and then I came all the way back down. Now, here's how big losing this laptop was. I was working on a pretty important paper for my theater class, and I was terrible in this theater class. And I kind of find it ironic that I'm telling you guys about how bad I was in a class about performing, and here I am telling you guys about here I am performing, basically. So, all right, so I had to do that paper all over from the start, and eventually I did it. So fast forward to the evening. I was pretty close with the guys that were living on my floor freshman year. We were in one of the guys' rooms, you know, just hanging out, just watching football. All of a sudden, a pack of other guys that were living on my floor come storming in and saying, Seth, they think they found your laptop. Seth, they think they found your laptop. I bolted up barefoot, went downstairs, met up with the police officers, and lo and behold, the laptop was there. So I was curious, you know, uh, who brought it in, who stole it, like what happened? They weren't allowed to tell me who exactly brought it in. All they said was they went up to the front desk, brought the laptop in, and said, I don't want the money. And then they walked away. And they could have said, hey, well, actually, they did say, hey, Seth, do you want to you know, press charges, want to find out who stole it? But that would have taken weeks, maybe even months to figure that out, and it would have taken me away from my laptop again. So I was just happy that, you know what, I got the laptop now, I'm happy, we can all, we could set this to rest. And I've had that laptop now for almost nine years now, and it's still okay. I think it's wearing down, but just the fact that I got it back was so great. Now... Here's, the th here's one last thing that was bugging me, like it even bugs me to this day. As I mentioned earlier, I was watching porn. Now, when I got my laptop back, the video that I was watching at the time of the theft 
was still up. So it made me, it made me ask myself, you know, did he just not go on the laptop at all and just left it the way it was? Or did he look at the video and decide, you know what, I'm gonna be nice to this guy, I'm gonna put the placeholder back to where it was before and just return it back to him. So Mr. Th so, Mr. Thief, wherever you are, I just wanna say thank you. And thank you guys very much, I'm Seth Rabin. Thank you, Seth. I'm pretty sure that you just, you know, you had a bro angel <laughs> who had seen the video before and opened your screen and was like, this has a pretty good ending. <laughs> he needs to see this one through. I don't want the money. Resolution Therapeutic Massage is an established massage therapy clinic in downtown Madison, Wisconsin, specializing in custom massages. Their therapeutic approach is ideal for student athletes, traveling professionals, top performers, and anyone who needs their body and mind to be at peak condition. The therapist at Resolution will evaluate your muscle response and select the best technique for your tailored massage. Clients often experience relief from acute pain after one session and relief from chronic pain after three sessions. Packages for ongoing support are available at a discounted rate. And if you go in and mention that you heard about Resolution from Madison Story Slam, your first time you will get a discount as well. So be sure to go check out Resolution Therapeutic Massage at 433 West Washington Avenue Mention Madison Story Slam, get that discount, and you can go get work done, and all your pains and things that ail you can be taken care of by the, the quality professionals at Resolution Massage. Also, they have an infrared sauna, and I hear that that is amazing. Thank you, Resolution Therapeutic Massage, for sponsoring Madison Story Slam and believing in what we do. Up next, we have storyteller Tyson Purcell. Happy St. Patty's Day, everybody. I'm the kind of guy who really likes to uh, work on a theme, so you guys can play a little drinking game and drink every time you hear me say the word big, and then you'll all be plastered in a little bit. No. Uh, I think when we think about the term big, a lot of us may think about our fathers and the aspect of, like, when you were a little kid, Chances are the biggest person you see is your dad. And a lot of the times they're like larger than life. And that was my dad. That, that is my dad. He's larger than life individual. Uh, he, he's like a cinder block of a man. And you go to a bar. He's the life of the party, just made out of raw charisma. And when I say raw, I mean completely unrefined. You know, but wherever it goes, like, Bob! And... Uh, that's my dad, and he was really big into softball. I grew up in Baraboo, Wisconsin. And in Baraboo, Wisconsin, City League softball is a really big deal. So much so that he used to recruit ringers from out of town and say that they were all staying at our house for the summer. 
because he was really big into winning. And uh, because he's so big into winning, he spent every weekend of my youth at softball tournaments instead of at home. And that helped me develop kind of a big chip on my shoulder about the fact that he was never around as a kid. So, it was about five years ago, I got a call from my mom, and she says, hey, if there's anything you want to say to your dad, you should probably come on over, because we're going to take him to hospice care tomorrow. I was like, okay, 20-minute drive, let's just take all of these unresolved issues and focus them down and get this, get this taken care of. So I drive over there, go into the back room, and my dad's laying down. And I'm stumbling over my words, and I'm getting really verbose because I'm trying to get to the point and trying to tell him, like, I just wanted him to apologize for always being the guy playing softball than the guy who needed to give me some advice. And he eventually gets out of his bed, and he kind of shuffles over to me. And he grabs my shoulders and he pulls me into a rough embrace. And he pulls me back and he kissed me on the lips, which is the first and only time he had ever done that. And he said, I love you. What more could there be? Then he went into hospice and died two weeks later. Now, if you're going to tell someone you love them, and then die to get out of saying you're sorry. <laughs> While it's effective, <laughs> not necessarily recommended. Um, so uh, my my dad, he, he passed away, and, you know, uh, while he was diagnosed with cancer and we were going through that, like, I had my daughter, and I, it was a big deal to me to be present in her life. So I always brought her over and, you know, had her spend time with grandpa. So he got, like, kind of a second chance to make a connection with a little child because I don't know if you realize this, but when you're dying of cancer, you can't run away from a three-year-old that wants to hug and kiss you. So he bonded with my daughter, and it was great. Uh, and while my memories of my dad, you know, they're sometimes bittersweet, one of the things that he did give to me and is a really big deal for me, it's one of my, my most cherished memories, is the fact that when we brought my daughter to say goodbye to my dad, by this time he was lying in bed and kind of wasting away, and he, I hadn't seen him move or say anything in like a little over a day. And my daughter came in, and we, she crawled up onto the bed, and his last movement in life was to try and hug her. And he just brought his arms around her, and that was the last time I ever saw him move. And I'm really thankful that that's my last memory of my dad. I cherish that. So I told that at the eulogy, and then, you know, we put him in, put him in the ground, and then uh, I went to visit his, his gravesite a couple months later. And walking up to the gravesite, and I looked down, and there's a softball 
So I go over and I pick it up. I kind of weigh it in my hand. And I threw that goddamn softball because I'm still kind of pissed about the softball. <laughs> I just chucked it. So I came back like a, another month. There's another softball. So I throw that one too and this keeps happening and I'm getting pissed. So I call my mom and I'm like, Mom, I keep finding softballs on dad's grave and I keep on throwing them. And she says to me, she's like, you know, that's kind of interesting because your Aunt Jane has been wondering who's been stealing all the softballs she leaves on your father's grave. Now, you may think that the big loser here was like my, my mom or my, my aunt because of the softballs, but, but really it's the Snyder family because my arm strength isn't that good and I can't get the softball out of the gravesite, so it's just piles of them over on that p- patch. Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll leave you guys with this detail. Um, when you're a child, you look up to people, and, and they do seem bigger, and they're larger than life. Uh, when my dad went into hospice, he didn't eat, so he just kind of wasted away. And I got to see him shrink, and I never thought I looked like my dad. But at the very end, after cancer and two weeks of hospice and not eating, he'd shrunk and when he died, I, was, I got a moment because, like, you know, he wasn't going to stop me. He was going to like, get away. I was able to look really closely at him. I was like, I look like my dad. So I'm like a sliver of him. So I never really looked like him in life, but I do look like his corpse. <laughs> All right. I like to leave it on a down note. All right. Uh, that's going to be enough time for me. I do also have a show. I'm going to plug this because they said I could. Uh, if you like this kind of story or hearing comedy, I'm going to have a storytelling and comedy show next month on April 13th at the Rigby. So Friday the 13th, unluckily hearing sad stories. All right. That's enough time for me. Thank you, Tyson. Man, you know, we have had, we've had tons of funny stories here, and we've had a handful of serious stories here, but I don't think I've ever seen someone so gracefully and skillfully mix a very serious story with a very funny way of telling it. So I will again plug what you're doing on Friday the 13th of April at the Rigby because that was phenomenal. And, and I would encourage everybody here to pack the Rigby, make them call the fire marshal because too many people are there. Because that was really great. Give it up for Tyson again. Our next storyteller is the father of somebody who's been coming for a while and telling really wonderful stories. Last month she told the story of her first period, Dad. So I'm expecting a lot, maybe about your first period. Please put your hands together for Kurt DeLapp. A while back, my uh, Uncle Bunny uh, passed away, and we went to his funeral. 
And at the funeral, there were a whole bunch of army guys there. They had stars and stripes and shiny boots and shiny helmets. And, and it was kind of a big deal. And um, I heard some stories there that um, I thought were kind of interesting. My Uncle Bunny was a real quiet guy. And um, we liked to try and get some army stories out of him when we were little kids. But he just shook his head and said, uh, you know, I guess it, it wasn't very much fun, and uh, I don't want to talk about it. But these other guys did. And um, um, as the funeral was going on, um, it was a really dark and rainy day, and there was lots of really loud thunder right overhead. And there was a big light in the church right in the middle there, and water started streaming down this light and into the room. And, you know, people were really listening then, you know. And they, they thought, you know, this is the end of the world. And somebody in back said, yeah, that's the field artillery. And um, my uncle was um, a junior officer in the field artillery in the Ardennes. And uh, when they would um, uh, move up every three or four days, they'd look for a real big house. And uh, this outfit that he was in had one senior officer, and there were about a dozen junior officers. And this senior officer was like, you know, he was, you know, they say that war really brings out the best in people. Well, maybe that's true for some guys, but um, this guy was really old and grumpy, and it really seemed to bring out the worst in him. And he was grouchy and offended just about everybody, and they all hated him. And they got to this house, and, um, and uh, the senior officer said, well, all you junior officers, you get the upstairs, and the downstairs is for the senior officers, you know, which was him. So uh, they all kind of grumbled a little bit and w walked upstairs. My uncle remembered, oh, yeah, according to the field manual, the first thing you're supposed to do is clear your weapon. So he had this 45, and he pulls it out. And, you know, these guys had been out in the field for weeks, and... They were all cold and wet and hungry. And, um, and he got in there, and he pulled out this, this pistol. And he pops the clip out, and he remembers, oh, yeah, there's one in the chamber, too. So he starts to pull the shuck back. And, and his hands are so cold that they're, they're kind of numb. And, and he's wet, so it's slippery. And, so it slips out of his grasp, and he realizes ah, he had his finger on the trigger at the same time. And he fires off this round right through the floor. And you know, like a 45 is pretty loud out in the field, but in an enclosed room, you know, it's something else. And so he had everybody's attention up there, you know, they all were looking at him. And, um, and they all realized, uh, 
you know, the senior officers downstairs. And so, if that wasn't bad enough, you know, when that bullet went off, it must have hit something down there, like a stove or a stone or something. And, you know, on the Lone Ranger where, you know, he fires at these guys and the, and the bullet hits a rock or something and goes, pew! He said, he said that was what happened down there. And, and everybody heard that too. And they thought, Jesus, he might have killed the senior officer. And there's like a moment of silence and all of a sudden there's some heavy footsteps, you know. And everybody just freezes and this giant MP appears in the door and he looks around and my uncle was the only one that was holding a smoking pistol. <laughs> so he walks right up to him and he gets right in his face. He says, well, God damn it, you missed a son of a bitch. <laughs> Thank you, Kurt. Our next storyteller is a, uh, a very much a regular at Madison Story Slam. He usually tells stories about sex, so I can only imagine what his big story is going to be. <laughs> Here is Zachary Shea telling his big story. It is not. Um, <laughs> no, I was actually thinking about, I'm pretty lucky, the, well, the biggest news I've ever had to share with my parents was that I got fired from a job, and before that, the biggest news I had ever had to share with my parents was I think I'd set the toaster on fire, which was a lie. I knew I had set the toaster on fire. I saw it. Um, and that's probably for the best because I don't want to say I have a bad relationship with my parents, with my family. I love them. I would take a bullet for them. But if I was struck with sudden amnesia and then brought to a party and they were also guests at the party, I probably would not hang out with my parents. Uh, but I call them enough for my mother to remind me every time that I don't call her enough. I... She tells me all the time, please don't call, you know, please don't wait a month to call me again. And I'm like, okay, I will. And then I inevitably forget. And I call her again in a month and she reminds me, we thought you were dead. Where have you been? What's going on? Did you get fired again? It's just... She... <laughs> of course, if that's my relationship with my parents, my relationship with my sister is way more just awkward. I th like, like, do you feel that? <laughs> That's the general affect of any room with just my sister and I. We, 
I, again, I love her. We just have nothing in common. She's, she's a PhD candidate, and she's an athlete, and she's a good citizen, and I'm kind of a dork. There just isn't a lot of chemistry there. So, and I think when I went off to college, that was like four whole years where I probably never texted her. Like, I saw her at Christmas, and sometimes I, I worked over the summer, so I would see her for like maybe a grand total of 14 days of any given year. And we didn't really text with each other, so we didn't really talk. And I think we were both kind of okay with that, um, which might sound like a bummer to some people. I don't want to play it off as this huge, sad falling out we had. It was just that was kind of our relationship, loving but no need to interact. Uh, that sounded worse than I intended. <laughs> I hope Meredith's not listening to this. So, but I do call my parents, like I say. I call them all the time. I'm usually out and about, and I remember, oh, I haven't called mom in a month, so I'll pick up and I'll call, and she'll update me on things, and I'm usually about a month behind on any news uh, that the family has, like my father's surgery or the fact that they were renovating the kitchen, stuff like that. And I remember one time in particular, I'm calling my mom and we're talking and she's asking over and over again, what's new? What else is new? What else is new? And we talk for about an hour because I haven't called her in a month and we're getting about ready to go. I, we usually hang up when my mom has to go for a walk or make dinner or just do something else and she'll keep me on the phone uh, until that happens. So she goes, Oh, yeah, I got to go for a walk. I'm just getting my shoes on right now, so I will talk to you later. I love you. One more thing. Your sister is gay. Please don't wait a month to call. <laughs> so I go, whoa, 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 whoa. It's a little jarring to get that kind of big news not from the person. And I'm like, I gather my thoughts. And I'm like, should you have told me that? Like, shouldn't that be her thing? And mom goes, look, I really got to go. And, you know, she told us <laughs> a year ago. And I'm like, still, it's her thing. Like, let her do it in her own time. And she goes, well she did sort of do the public thing on Instagram and we forgot you didn't have Instagram. <laughs> and I'm like, so tell her. And she's like, well, that was like three weeks ago. So I'm telling you now. So don't call in a month. And she hangs up the phone. And that's the first time I wasn't the first one to hang up the phone. I'm sitting there like, all right, what do I do with this? And a little voice in my head goes, hey, Zach, maybe you should text your sister. <laughs> so I shoot her a Facebook message. And then afterwards, I second guess that. I'm like, that feels not formal enough for this kind of a thing. <laughs> so I send her a text, because I'm not going to call her, because I'm not going to call her after never calling her for four years. She's going to think someone is dead. <laughs> and I have the text. I know, like, props is not part of the rules, but I wanted to read it when I was thinking of this story tonight, because I was like, how, how did I react? You know, because I'm walking, 
I'm, I'm, on, I'm in the Capitol, and I'm walking around, and I'm like, this is Meredith's thing to do. How do I break this conversation? So what I ended up sending her was, hey, just sent you a Facebook message. Ignore it. Don't worry about it. By the way, mom gave me a bit of gossip. Apparently, I'm like a year behind, dot, dot, dot. So yeah, dot, dot, dot. How do you want me to broach this topic? <laughs> to which she responds with zero punctuation, lol, dude. Okay. <laughs> and we talk for like the first time in a really, really long time, actually. And we talk about the topic at hand for like two texts. I'm like, Mom says you have a girlfriend. She says, Yeah, she's all right, I guess. <laughs> and then we go on to other stuff. Which I guess is kind of like, you know, like, so my sister's gay, whatever. Like, that doesn't change my relationship with her. So I get why for her and for me, like, if she, it's not a big deal to her, then it, it's not a big deal to me. Like, it would be her place to make it a big deal. But we talked that whole night, and I guess we text about like once every three months now, which again, like, if I had started with that, you guys would have been like, wow dude, you guys have a bad relationship. But, like, that's a lot more for the past two years, and I don't know. I think that's kind of a big thing. I, I still love her. I'd still take a bullet for her, and I still wouldn't hang out at her if I didn't know her at a party. And I have no idea how to end this story, so I'm just going to wait for Adam to get back up. <laughs> Hey, that's going to do it for us at Madison Story Slam for this episode. Be sure to head over to resolutionmassage.com so you can figure out what kind of massage you want. And remember, on your first visit, you get a discount if you mention Madison Story Slam. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing, leaving a rating and a review for us. Remember, April 21st, that's the third Saturday in April. At the Wilmar Center, we will be back with another Story Slam event. The theme then is Child's Play. And then on May 12th at Mr. Roberts on Atwood Avenue, come to our new event called Read It and Weep, where we want you, yes, you, to come and read old letters, short stories, journal entries. Maybe you could play an old song you wrote. Anything that you wrote before you graduated high school or anything that you've written that you have at least 10 years separation from. Maybe you didn't start writing until you were 20, but you're 50 now. So come read something you wrote when you were in your 20s. That would be amazing. We believe that the people we are now can learn from the person you were then and maybe have a few laughs along the way. Hey, my name is Adam. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. And as always, I love you.